Hello, everybody. Welcome to Millennium Live. This is going to be a great episode for our cybersecurity professionals and listeners. And we are very excited to have Bill Bonney. He is a retired former senior vice president of information security at T-Mobile and corporate security officer at Motorola. Bill is a leading information risk management practitioner based in the U.S. with broad experience in all aspects of creating sustaining and transforming security protection for organizations and enterprises. He's a visionary information security leader, direct experience working with federal and state governments, high technology, biotech, aerospace, banking segments, the list goes on. I want to bring him in right now. Bill, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Very happy to have you here. Good morning, Connor. I'm glad to join you. It's really opportunity to try to share some of the insights and some of the experience that I've had over a long career to help other practitioners that are either earlier in their career or just getting started understand some of the challenges that they, they can anticipate and be successful in overcoming. Great. And that's, I think that's right where I want to start with you. Can you just give us a little bit of more background? You have a, you know, over 40 years career, your background and concerning your experience in cybersecurity. Thanks for that, Connor. But I started way back in the 20th century. I was an Army counterintelligence officer, and uh, I'd like to emphasize that was a long time ago. But it really was a, a deep grounding in some of the fundamental principles of understanding adversaries and then threats, vulnerabilities, exploitation, and consequences of failed security practices. But taking that baseline, that I spent a number of years in a variety of industries, including banking, biotechnology, aerospace and defense with places like uh, the Hughes Aircraft Company, and then finally ended up in consulting and, and moving into more advanced roles of leadership in the telecom industry. When I was hired by Motorola, I became their first chief security officer and had global responsibilities for physical, operational, and information security in 40 plus countries around the world where Motorola was present, and then accepted a role with T-Mobile as the capstone for my career, building their security program for information protection from a rudimentary and baseline level to one of the leading organizations within the telecom industry. So over that entire scale of time, what I've learned is that the challenges are constantly changing. And one of the most important things for a professional in this field is to understand and adapt to those changes, to be rigid and to dogmatic about this is how it is because that's the way we did it before is a sure prescription for absolute failure. Whenever we're dealing with the kinds of dynamic threats and, and the nation state adversaries of the 21st century. So having that kind of perspective will allow the practitioner to be much more effective and to have the understanding that your lack of understanding of a particular segment of the challenge today is not a reflection of failure, but is an opportunity to, to grow and to learn and be more valuable in the future as you overcome those obstacles or those challenges. That's a lot to take in too. And with the experience you have, I want to pick your brain a little bit, and I'm sure these cyber listeners want to do the same. As daunting as this sounds, what does the security landscape look like for a professional who holds the role of you know, chief information security officer today? Well, first, I want to congratulate anyone that's in that role. You, you know, they will have accepted a responsibility to be the absolute defender of their organization 
against these kinds of emerging threats and, and risk issues that are now commonplace. Over the last five years, I'd say in particular, the board level executives have grown to understand the critical importance of having an effective cybersecurity program. It's no longer purely a technical or operational issue that can be dealt with by the CIO or, or undertaken by the CTO. The expectation of, of executive leadership is there is going to be an accountable individual that has the background skills, experience, and the personality, uh, force of personality to be effective in this role. And you know, the challenge I think is in part, you have to be one part diplomat and one part police officer in the sense of enforcement becomes a critical element of effectiveness of a program. You know, that doesn't mean the authoritarian personality, but it means the accountability to ensure that controls are being effectively executed consistently throughout the organization because failure to do that is going to create otherwise avoidable responsibilities. In the 21st century, I think, you know, the challenges that were technological and operational that would be, let's say, the, the 20th century level have now become compounded by the growing extensive array of nation state adversaries who have deeply invested in cyber warfare technologies. Now, I can understand why an individual who is at perhaps a state-level government or a, uh, an NGO, a nonprofit organization, where well, unfortunately, in the nature of the 21st century conflicts, there's a very, very good chance that uh, people will end up becoming collateral damage, that they, they ask the, the main focus may well be upon a particular portion of an adversary's infrastructure, critical infrastructure. But if the power grid in North America goes down because of a conflict between United States and you know Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, or whoever, you know the fact that you are not a defense company is not going to be relevant. The fact that your organization might, in fact, provide the pathway or access into that critical infrastructure that an adversary would exploit in order to be effective right. in their role, I think that's part of the challenge too. Is like so, it's really taking everything that we've learned from the past thirty plus years of information security experience, and then adding a new dimension of thinking about nation states and the sophistication that they bring to that particular challenge. That's not just transnational criminal organizations. It's now a whole additional level of people that are paid and perhaps in uniform for a, a company or a, a country that is now adverse to your organization or your country. Yeah. With the state of the world, that's definitely on uh, people's minds right now. Let's talk about maybe some more of how our members feel, you know, working for a pretty large company, like a fortune 100 company, you know, it's critical to, to build internal teams, finding the right talent and also, you know, creating partnerships out there. How do you create a security organization that can handle all aspects, like the people, the processes and the technology required to secure an organization like a fortune 100 company? That's an excellent question, Gunnar. From my perspective, my experience has been that the array of functional expertise that's required to maintain a 7 by 24 by 365 protection team is a daunting challenge. And the okay. difficulty of trying to acquire sufficient headcount and maintain that headcount in, in a very, very dynamic workforce environment, too. Some estimates are that in North America, we're short somewhere between 500,000 or more cybersecurity professionals. Wow. So the good news is it's a great career field to be in, plenty of opportunity. But if you're the chief information security officer or the senior security official for your team, how do you, you know, maintain that team whenever you're being poached by other folks too? So 
part of the, the challenge is to find the, the right mix of internal talent and focused on the, the mission critical functions that have to be done internally. And then the other challenge is to find good partners that are able to be flexible and adaptable as well. One of the, the challenges I've seen in my career earlier was uh, large international outsource organizations located in other countries have a tendency to come in and be able to talk to the CIO or chief financial officer and say, we can save you a ton of money in your IT operations, you know, your operational baseline. And there's some truth to that. But the, the business model appears to be typically come in and cut costs dramatically by showing how much you can, you can reduce. And then when the company realizes that the terms and the specific service levels that were agreed to in the contract are insufficient, then begins the change order extortion. It's like, oh, oh, you need that? Yeah, that'll be a change order. Oh, oh, you need that? That'll be a change order. And so you end up being, you, you know, you save a dollar and then you yeah, end yeah. up spending $10 to compensate for the things that you really didn't anticipate because in order to be effective at outsourcing and really benefit from, a, you know, the kind of leverage that a big outsourcer provides, you really have to know the nuts and bolts and, you know, micro details of every part of your operation. Difficult to do, especially difficult to do in the security field because what was understood when we signed the contract two years ago as being the functions and the activities is probably going to be completely different today and certainly won't be adequate or sufficient tomorrow. Having that kind of an organizational relationship where one can be flexible with the outsource provider, say, okay, it's this kind of, of activity and having the commitment on both sides to professional respect and courtesy that says, okay, this is what we think. This is what we experience. Okay. How do we calibrate that to be on? So that's where organizations like in our case, we worked closely with a company called SecureOps. They were very effective in providing that kind of adaptive response to the, the dynamic threat environment and the you know, very significant operational changes that took place during the course of contractual activities. Right. So let's, let's talk about that. So it sounds like you know, it's pretty critical to find partners with the right expertise, the flexibility to deal with dynamic and ever-changing client needs. And, and that's, that's part of the world that, we, that we're living in. And I think you touched upon it greatly. So can you provide maybe an example or two? Well, again, I'd say I'd start with the issue that the challenge for the security team is to understand what kinds of elements are going to be most important to the organization that they're supporting. With regards to the, I call it the protection array. You know, the in a small organization, maybe it's antivirus, and maybe it's a uh, a firewall, and maybe it's uh, some patch management or, or uh, endpoint uh, support systems. In a larger, sophisticated organization, that array could grow to dozens, perhaps you know, a hundred or so different discrete products, solutions, or activities that need to be executed consistently in order to be successful. Now, I've been through multiple mergers during the course of my career. That, that was one of the challenges we found is, you know, whenever you acquire or you, you bring in another organization, they built their own protection array independent of your architecture and designs. And now you have to look at how do you merge those two in a way that allows you to be effective. So having a, an organization that is, let's say, product specific only, they say, we, you know, we know Cisco stuff and that's what we do only, or that's what our, our principal focus is, may leave you exposed if the, the, the need is to deal with a different kind of networking or, or firewall technologies. So I think it's, it really comes down to knowing what the protection array is, understanding what kind of support models could be required to sustain it, and then thinking very, very strategically about where the next move is going to be. And so having organizations that are able to adapt and grow with and provide feedback to the internal team as well, I think is very helpful. 
the extent that you know we might have a core understanding of a particular set of firewall technologies and the acquired organization has a different set. We may have a situation where the opportunity is to actually jump to the newer, more sophisticated version that the acquired company had because they were a smaller startup and we were a larger established organization. But how do you get there efficiently? Well, I like to say part of what I'm looking for from a, an outsourced provider are some Sherpas, some people that have been up to the top of that mountain and can help guide me to get back up to the mountain too. And the, the difference is, you know, I, I'm not planning to go to the top of the mountain every week, so I don't need a bunch of Sherpas on my payroll, but I look to provide those folks, bring them in as augmentees to help get my team up that mountain and into the new area where we're now be effective. We can maintain what we've built. Sure. And so how do you know when you found these, these Sherpas, how do you know when you found a vendor or a partner that would really truly provide value? If you're strictly focused on financials, that will tend to, to fall a little short, but it is an important sure. variable, but it can't be the only variable. But having you know value for the, the services offered, I think, comes down to having an ongoing set of metrics that establish this is the baseline that has to be maintained and, and executed consistently, whether that's you know, uh, patch management, whether that's antivirus uh, updates, whether that's ongoing scanning of vulnerabilities and reporting that back, having those metrics and having that consistently tracked as part of the regular business reviews that are being held with that partner provider. I think that's a really important baseline that we need to establish. And then again, testing them with the regards to the what's new, what's next. Part of what you expect to hear is what are your other clients looking at? What has their experience been? We're considering a new endpoint uh, detection response tool. We've heard from, let's say, engineering, or we've heard from IT, or we've heard from a business unit that they really like this thing because whatever is important to them take that information, sit down with the partner and have confidence that they're going to provide you what amounts to the best recommendation. You know, this is the, uh, like the physician model. You expect when you go to the physician that he or she's going to review with you the, the lab results and, and, and have that kind of full disclosure conversation. You have confidence that they're interested in your best interest as opposed to their own personal best interest. If the, if the organization is vendor centric, I think it's just a higher potential. They're going to say, well, you know, obviously you need to buy more of the stuff that my company makes up because that's the, that's the easiest way to, to get more value. It tends perhaps to be a little bit suspicious whenever that's the, the first thing that they recommend. So let's, let's dive into some of these security technologies. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we, as we know, the number of problems and threats and alerts are consistently going up as we, as we go forward. So, you know, our security technology, like SIMs, firewalls, and point detection solutions, are they more difficult to manage now? What's happening is even though the, the vendors are trying to make the products themselves simpler to, to install and support and maintain, I think that the challenge becomes the increasing variety of detected events and activities and understanding that these elements are parts of the problem that are coming to your attention through that particular platform or through that, the system that you've created. So it is more complex and more more difficult, I think, to, to have that kind of fusion center, that kind of analysis that, that gives you confidence that you're properly prioritizing and focusing on the most critical events for the most important activities. The, the other challenge becomes the bad actors never rest. From their perspective, there is no such thing as New Year's Eve celebrations or, you know, <laughs> a holiday uh, time off. 
It's kind of like their their metric of success is exploitation and, and monetize that exploitation in a way right. that gives them personal benefit. So from my perspective, what I was looking for is I wanted to have a situation where we were not totally dependent on any kind of outsourced provider. Instructive example from the 20th century was way back when General Motors outsourced their IT operations to a company called EDS, Electronic Data Systems. GM made the mistake of basically saying, take it all and just do what is right for us because we make cars, we don't make IT stuff. <laughs> and unfortunately that, you know, the dependency left them very vulnerable to the individual, uh, let's say bonus priorities of the account team as opposed to what was necessarily good for the organization. The way you avoid that is you have to have sufficient internal expertise that you know when you're getting what you need because we can do this ourselves if we have to, but I don't want to have my people necessarily working on holidays, evenings and weekends. I'd like to be able to have them work during core business hours so they can interact with their counterparts in engineering or the business or IT or, or whatever they need to do to, to help the organization be successful. Evenings, weekends and holidays, I've got someone I can rely on that's got a proven track record of if they wake me up at three o'clock in the morning on New Year's Eve and my hangover is just about pounding there, uh, there's a good reason they're doing that. They're not just saying Happy New Year, Bill. They're saying Happy New Year, Bill. And oh, by the way, this is what's going on. And we, you know, we've activated your teams and that are dealing with this and we need you to be aware of it because they're, they're heads down dealing with the, whatever the problem is. That's what I'm looking for is that kind of like seamless integration between so at the end of the day, when we're having an, an, an incident, an event, or, or a really critical activity, it's seamless. You know, we could have a, the outsource provider on the phone talking with the internal customer representative. You know, at one point I could recall a situation where the, the vendor we were using, which was the SecureOps team, their CEO got on the phone because he spoke Japanese. When I was at Motorola, we were having a problem in Japan that required explanation of the technical and operational details. My team didn't have that, that background. And oh my goodness, to have that kind of interaction with the, the internal customer, they just thought we were the best. It's like, wow, well, we weren't the best. We had the best partner in that case. And they were able to help just fold right in and be part of that response to a legitimate business customer concern. That explains how having a good partner is probably key in, in, in handling those situations because, you know, handling incidents and these types of like alerts are very time consuming, but time consuming tasks. So you'd want a good partner to, to help you handle these things while we go out and, and party on New Year's Eve. So <laughs> talking about like, you know, a lot of massive alerts and incidents that are, you know, hitting organizations right at this time. How does one respond with an investigative process? How do you go about that? Part of it is going to depend on the, the specific organizational and the legal and regulatory environment which you're operating. And that's, by the way, that itself is one of the core professional growth areas that I've observed over the last 30 years. Now, part of my background is I did attend law school uh, whenever I was uh, fresh out of college. And that, that helped me have a grounding in the legal issues that have now become very critical. So having that, that's is a starting point. Second part is the, the process has to, you know, it can't just go during core business hours. It's going to run continuously until we have the, the facts identified and the circumstances really boxed up in a way that we can explain to executive management and, and ultimately to customers or stakeholders, this is what happened. This is basically what went wrong. And what's being what was done to contain and limit that. And so part of what you're you're gonna have to have is if you're gonna have partners participate in that, 
you have to have absolute integrity and discretion as part of the that relationship, that confidence that you're not going to have something that's embarrassing or harmful to the organization's best interests prematurely leak out to the press. Because uh, you know, classically, when you see something very bad happen in, in the, the media, you know, my rule of thumb is wait 24 hours until you get the full scoop. Because very frequently the first reports are inaccurate. That's because that's human nature. We we see and interpret it. We we believe this is what it is, and then the facts tend to fall. Well, there's some of that, I think, in the cyber areas as well, that you know, the initial reports can be extremely alarming. And sometimes justifiably so, but but frequently it's like, yes, something bad happened, but here's how the, the layered defense managed to limit the consequences of what was initially looked like it was a particularly scary set of facts. You don't want those scary facts prematurely leaked out to a media that then runs with the story because it's, you know, they're able to make uh, you know, more clicks on their site because something, uh, you know, important or impressive went wrong. It's a, a company or an organization everyone knows about. That kind of integrated response process where the outsource providers that have been, let's say, monitoring network or running pen tests or providing vulnerability data are part of the response internally to and working you know, seamlessly hand in glove. I think that really has a lot of benefit for the, the internal responders because you're never going to have, at least in my experience, enough people to be able to do everything the way you'd like to as fast as you'd like to. You know, you can get it done eventually, but, you know, say as soon as something bad happens, the phone calls and the text messages and the emails start from leadership saying WTFO, what exactly, who, what, when, where, how, why? Because they're looking at if I'm going to have to stand in front of stakeholders or the media or, God forbid, a regulator and explain something, is I, I want the facts as, as soon as possible so we can start working those to understand what, what went wrong. So it has to be seamless. It has to be transparent. There has to be integrity and discretion on both sides of that and trust. So I think trust is one of the most important factors, and that's earned over time. You know, you, you can have a, a good contract. You can spell things out, but how people execute against that contract over a period of months and years is how you gain the confidence that in a situation that wasn't anticipated in that language, you're still going to have the kind of positive resolution that benefits everybody. You bring up a great point here because when it's after the fact, when there's an attack, usually the response from leadership is pretty active and it's, and it's always, yep, do whatever you need to do, get this situation under control. So my next question, you know, are business leaders of today in 2022 taking risk of attack more seriously now than, than they previously did, maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago? Or is it that they still need more IT cybersecurity presence in the room, on the board? What, what have you seen recently in terms of that? Because, you know, that's a big topic, getting the leadership behind security as, as one of the, the main goals of an organization. I'd say I was very fortunate in the, in the last portions of my career that executive leadership understood and was willing to make the investments necessary to provide a functional capability. The challenge becomes, when is it enough? And I, you know, every, every time you, you go to a senior executive, it's kind of like, okay, this makes sense. Are we done? And they, you know, having them understand that we're never really done. This is an arms race. This is one of those things where, right. and so they're trying to find that, that balance point between 
the organization doesn't exist for the security team. The organization exists to fulfill some sort of societal mission, be that a, a nonprofit, governmental, or you know, a for-profit organization. Those stakeholders are why we're here. On the other hand, the disruption, destruction, or the ability to effectively limit that mission because of a security failure is very, very negative. So they're trying to balance the, okay, if I spend another dollar on uh, security or another dollar on a, a for-profit uh, enhancement or, or capability expansion, where's the benefit going to be to the organization? So, and part of that is liability in a legal and, and sense, and also in, in a uh, brand and reputational sense. So the sensitivity to those liabilities is what's driving the willingness to accommodate additional investments or make the investments in those business cases that are for protection. But I think as security professionals, we're passionate about, we don't want any problems. We want everything to be prevented. We want you know make sure that it goes smoothly and seamlessly throughout. That's somewhat unrealistic. At the end of the day, there, you know, there's cost benefit trade-offs that have to be made. Now, if someone's going to go to jail, that's a different cost benefit trade-off than if someone, if the organization might pay a fine, if it turns out something went wrong and they could have prevented it and chose not to do so. But the ability to demonstrate that you have a risk management process, you've, you've worked through the, the probabilities, the likelihoods, you've placed your bets on what are the most important, impactful, or beneficial to the organization. And other ones, we're willing to take that additional risk there because either we see a future state where that will be resolved with a new, new deployment of some kind, or the likelihood and probability of it happening is relatively low, or the consequences of it happening based on what we know at this point in time appear to be low. Now, all that is subject to being second guessed in the aftermath of what really happens. But that's why, you know, I think sometimes the, the technical professionals underestimate the ability to be the importance of being able to show thoughtful, quantitative and qualitative risk assessment that made those choices as to what investments would be made and which ones would be tabled for later. Because you, typically it's not, no, it's it's not right now. Of course. Oh, yeah, this is uh, next year's budget, next quarter, next quarter. Bill, I mean, I want to be cognizant of your time, but this has been mm -hmm. a great conversation. I just have a final question for you, and it, I just want to make sure our listeners get the most you know, out of your expertise. Is there any advice out there for our members, our listeners, our cybersecurity professionals that you might want to share? Some pain points that you know are common today that uh, you know, everybody here is in the same boat trying to solve the same issues, what maybe your predictions are for, uh, for the coming year? I have great respect for the folks that accept the responsibility to be a senior security professional or, or any portion of the cybersecurity workforce. It's, it takes a particular mindset and personality to be comfortable with the kind of ambiguity and, and the, the kind of rapid and dynamic change. There's an old joke, and a reporter once asked an American Navy fighter pilot, why do you want to be a fighter pilot? He said, well, there's only two jobs in the world worth having. One's president of the United States and one's fighter pilot. I didn't want to be president. So it's, it's that kind of you know, choice to be there because that's what you want to do. That's really important. And to understand that the victory is every day that they don't get in, every day that they don't do something wrong, you're, you're putting points on the board that demonstrate this is the program's working. But there's going to be days when it's not going to work. And that's the nature of the, the business. And for, for perfectionist type personalities, that can be very frustrating. Like, but only if, you know, if, if, if that one person had not configured the, the application that way, we wouldn't have had that problem. And, you know, it's, yeah, well, it's, it's human nature. You're playing the, 
the game of, of uh, big numbers here. Most of the time, most things will go right. When they don't go right, you can, you got a structure that can explain how and why we got to where that was. So my prediction for the, the near future is simply that these roles are only going to become more important. And the practitioners that are in those roles, you're, you're getting, you know, I'm a former army officer, you're getting combat experience every day that you survive another week and, you know, another month in the trenches, your resume is becoming more valuable and more beneficial. So don't, don't lose hope. Understand that uh, even when things go wrong, it's an opportunity to learn and stay positive. I, I've had folks ask me, say, how did, how did you do it? How did you stay in this area for so many years? I said, because I knew I was doing the best I could with what I had, where I was at. And I could stand in front of anybody at any point in time and say, this is where we are and how it was. I learned this from the uh, friend of mine at, at Motorola, a senior executive there. I said, but you know, I see security people sometimes get fired after an incident. If they had something goes wrong, they, they lose their jobs. And she said to me, he said, well, Bill, you kind of have to look at your job kind of like the high school football coach. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you have winning season, winning season. They love you. They love you. And then you have the losing season. You need to go work someplace else. That doesn't, that doesn't mean you were a bad person. It just meant the variables lined up and you lost it. So as long as you can look in the mirror and, and know that you didn't sell yourself short or organization short, you didn't make bad choices knowingly, deliberately, and willfully, you did the best you could with what you had you have that confidence to go to the next level and being able to explain if you know to the next interview well here's here's how things happened and i think most organizations are sophisticated enough these days to realize that good people are a scarce commodities sometimes sometimes there are challenges that you just can't meet and you have to be prepared you know at one point in my career i actually told the uh the organization I was working for that I was quitting because I wasn't getting the resources I needed. And so I ended up talking with the, the federal regulator. They said, why are you leaving? You're so good. I said, this is why. So they went back and talked to executive leadership. And guess what? My successor got everything she needed to be wildly successful. So there's a long game to be played here and just have confidence that the investments you're making in yourself and the, the roles you're, you're filling today are going to be important for the, for the foreseeable future. So hang in there. Well said. Bill Bonnie. thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us on Millennium Live. You're a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I'm sure our listeners are going are gonna to really enjoy this episode. I want to thank you, Bill. I want to thank SecureOps. We can't wait to push this episode live. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.